Welcome to the Church for All Nations podcast, streaming live from Tacoma, Washington. We're so excited you joined us today. We hope you're encouraged by this week's message. So we are in this Galatians series. I love this book and I, I kind of laugh because we do call it the book of Galatians, but as Pastor JF unpacked, it really is a letter. It's a letter from an amazing, brilliant church planter named Paul. It's a letter that he wrote to this church in Galatia after he left. Now, here's what happened. He planted the church, got it established, and then when he departed, because the enemy hates everything God wants to do, when he departed, false teachers weaseled their way in. And what happened in that moment was they started speaking a contrary gospel to what Paul had been preaching, and then chaos started to erupt. How many of you have ever been in moments of chaos? Anyone? I definitely have. Some happen in our house (laughs) with our two littles. But I was thinking this week about one very specific, somewhat traumatic moment of chaos in my life. I was in first grade in the little elementary school in the little town that Miss Peggy lives in that I grew up in, Lincolnton, Georgia. I was in first grade in the elementary school there, the public elementary school, the only school in, not the town, the entire county. Come on, small town. It's so beautiful. You don't even know. The only school, and I have about 15, 16 kids in the class with me. And what happened back then, because it was years ago, what happened was the buzzer came on the intercom, and my first grade teacher, I won't say her name because this will go online, and of course my dad will share it. (laughs) You guys are a tough crowd today. (laughs) The intercom buzzes, and they call my first grade teacher to the office because she has a phone call. Now... That's illegal now, thank goodness, for good reason, to leave the class unattended. But I'm guessing it wasn't then. And so my teacher leaves, but before she leaves, she leaves specific instructions that we are to work on this specific lesson in our workbooks. And when she returned, she would be going over the answers. She departs the class, the door closes, and then the little boy in the desk next to me decides he has a different plan. In that moment, this little boy runs to the front of the classroom and tells everyone entirely contradictory instructions. In that moment, he says, no, 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 we're not doing the workbook. We're having a race. And he convinces three other little boys to shove all of the metal and wooden desks in the middle of the classroom to make a track of sorts. And then they commence the running. Now, I, of course, as your pastor, am a very obedient little girl, and I'm still sitting in my little wood and metal desk on the concrete floor. And about lap number three, 
one little boy knocks my desk so hard that all of little first grade Ashley goes toppling onto the concrete floor with the metal and wood desk smashing my face into it. Ow. Yeah. Not only did I smash this entire lip and all my chin wide open, all four of my top baby teeth were shoved by the concrete floor into the roof of my mouth. Hope we don't have queasy stomachs here this morning. Let's just go ahead and say the blood and water flowed. Yeah. It looked like a massacre had taken place. And can you fathom what it felt like to be that teacher walking back into that chaos? And here's this little girl just mangled on the floor. They rushed me into oral surgery. I had those teeth removed and had everything sewn up. Yes, my nickname growing up because of multiple accidents like this was Scarface. If you'd like to call me Pastor Scarface, I promise I've been called worse. (laughs) But I lived through hurt and pain and trauma as a result of the chaos in that moment. In fact, I have a picture of the headgear that I had to wear for many years. As a, I know, just be grateful that middle school only lasts like three years. I, I'm telling you. But here's my point. I had to wear a corrective device for multiple years because of the chaos of someone walking into a situation and teaching something that was drastically different than what we had been told. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's not only writing a letter, he's starting the corrective process because he's already been told about the chaos, about the hurt, the pain, the destruction that's already taken place because those false teachers have inundated themselves into that church and preaching something very contrary to the grace that Paul had introduced to that church. What is contrary to grace? When you think about what this church had been taught by these false teachers, you begin to understand just how detrimental it was. Paul had introduced the truth of the grace-based relationship of the gospel. Our relationship with the Lord based solely on grace. And what was so contrary to that that had been introduced to this church was a works-based gospel. A works-based relationship. Well, Pastor Ashley, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? Grace, works, I mean, at least it's a relationship with God. Here's what I need you to understand. It is a massive deal. And here is why. Because the way you see God, the way you see your relationship with God will and does affect the way you do every relationship in your entire life. And so this morning, 
You need to understand that God himself established a grace relationship with you, never a works-based relationship with you. A grace-based relationship is one where initially, immediately, at the very beginning, you get all the forgiveness, you get all the mercy, you get all the encouragement, you get all of the promises from the very beginning. And it starts then, and it continues through that journey. Now, the works-based relationship is the opposite. The works-based relationship says you get nothing till you earn it. And then at the end, I decide whether you get any of it or not. Some of you were raised in homes that were work-based relationships. And you've even seen how it affects the way you see God and maybe even the way you interact with your own children. And so this morning, because it is so incredibly important to understand the grace-based relationship that God has established for us, we are going to look at three areas that Paul unpacks in this third chapter alone. That he's constantly reminding us to not fall into the trap of that works-based relationship. Students, God has done something incredible in your lives this week. Do not think that now you have to start earning his love. That is a lie from the pit of hell. He already loves you 100%. You cannot get him to love you more based on what you do, and you also can't cause him to love you less based on what you do. And the problem with a works-based relationship is it gets your eyes off of Jesus and onto yourself. And that's what the enemy always wants to happen. So that instead of being crazy excited about what God's doing in your life and what he's done for you, you start to look in the mirror and you're insanely discouraged over how you don't think you were good enough today. And that is never from the Lord. So today we're going to look at Galatians 3. And we're going to unpack three areas that Paul reminds us of. He says you got to keep these at the forefront of your mind so you don't ever fall into the trap of a works-based relationship. This is your headgear, right? This is that corrective device for the church in Galatia. The very first reminder of God's amazing grace so that we don't fall into a workspace relationship is remember the prerequisites. Remember the prerequisites. Now, those of you going into college, maybe they do this in high school now. I was a college professor, so I always, when I hear the word prerequisite, I think about all the classes that were required of my students before they can enter into our class. And so some of you are thinking about this idea of God's grace in terms of prerequisites. It's that getting yourself cleaned up before you come to God. And that's another lie of the enemy. Because there is only one prerequisite to coming to God. And we're going to look at how Paul unpacks it. Let's look at Galatians. If you have your Bibles or it's going to be on the screens, we're going to start at verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
1, Paul is writing and he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And really, there's an exclamation point there. So Paul is saying, Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has cast an evil spell on you? Now, I'm going to stop there because Pastor J.F. said this morning, and I love that bit of history, that in 1906, this community of believers was established. It was founded. Now, think for a second. Let's put it in modern-day context. The very first pastor's name was Pastor Stolson. So let's pretend Pastor Stolson was still alive, and let's pretend Pastor Stolson wrote us a letter okay, about what's going on today. What that would look like in modern language is, you idiots, what are you doing? Are you under some crazy spell, some sort of witchcraft? What is going on? Now, if if you read your Bible that way, I think you'd read a lot more, right? But is that not what it says? You foolish Galatians. Okay, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you'd seen a picture of his death on the cross. Verse 2, let me ask you this one question. We're talking about prerequisites, right? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Meaning, Did you receive the Spirit of God inside of you when you accepted Jesus? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying a law? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you what? Believed. You believed the message you heard about Christ. Verse 3, how foolish can you be? Don't be idiots. This is Paul. This is not me. You don't need to write me emails about, this is, scripture. After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? What's Paul saying here? Remember the prerequisites. The only thing that was required of you to receive the spirit of God was believing. Go back to the beginning. And that's exactly what any sort of great marriage counselor would tell you. Now, I know nobody in here has any marriage or relationship issues. Everybody's got perfect marriages. There's no frustrations. But let's talk about everybody out there, right? Okay, insert laugh here. (laughs) Hashtag the struggle is real. (laughs) <laughs> amen. Oh, I hope your wife's not sitting beside you. I heard a big old amen. No, I'm kidding. When a couple is walking through a hard time, a difficult time, and they go to see a counselor, which we always suggest, right? Do not go at this alone. We don't go at this alone. When they go in to see a counselor, typically they'll sit down and they'll start airing their grievances, right? They'll start talking about what frustrates them, 
what they're annoyed by. Oh, well, he does this, and he used to do this, but now he does that, and he doesn't hold the door open for me, and now the dishes just pile up, and I have to tell him to take out the garbage, blah, 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 blah. And then he'll say something like, well, she nags all the time, my Lord, and she used to cook us amazing meals, and now it's blah, 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 blah. And a great marriage counselor will start with something like, tell me about when you fell in love. Tell me about the beginning. What did you fall, what, what drew you to him? What, what mesmerized you about her? And often you'll hear things like, well, I mean, we used to take long walks and hold hands and have amazing meals. And maybe he would say, you know, she used to not just wear sweatpants and a t-shirt. She used to wear makeup (laughs) and sometimes clothes that fit. It's shocking. (laughs) Oh, toes. And then you start to unpack what it's like now. Well, now it's microwaving a lean pocket and arguing over the news, right? Go back to the beginning. And in your relationship with the Lord, you need to constantly keep that in the front of your mind. In the beginning, when you're interacting with other Christians, old and new, you have to keep that in the forefront of your mind in the beginning. How much love, how much encouragement, how much grace God gave to you only by believing. Never earning, never working for it. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He says, you weren't saved By obeying the law. Now, if you're new to this Bible thing, when we talk about the law, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible. We're talking about the Torah. And in the Torah, it includes 613 commands that if you were to count on being perfect according to the law, you would have to obey all of those commands all of the time in a perfect way way. Ain't nobody doing that except for one. Except for one. Because at the end of the day, there are people even in this room that are convinced that you can be good enough for God. And here's the reality. God isn't looking for good people. He is looking for perfect people. And there was only one. And so when God looks at you, you don't want him to see you. You want him to see Jesus. And he made a way for that to happen. Just by believing. And so I thought this week, Lord, how can I explain even the idea of how impossible it is to follow all 613 commands to be perfect according to the law? And I was walking yesterday, and Betty, I saw you in it. There you are. And I ran into Betty and her husband, and I, was, I had my sermon with me, and I'm walking Chambers Bay, right? And, <laughs> and I'm sure I scared you guys because I just ran up and hugged you. But uh, I was walking and studying and praying, and I looked out on the ocean the Puget Sound. And I thought about, Lord, it's like if I had to swim the whole Pacific Ocean. That's how impossible. That's how impossible it is for every single one of us. But here's what we do when we have works-based 
mentality. When we have works-based relationships ingrained in how we see God, this is what we end up doing. We end up thinking about, let's say, let's say we're all standing at the shore. We're all standing at the shore. The Pacific Ocean is in front of us. Maybe we're at Cannon Beach. Ah. The Pacific Ocean is in front of us, and that is the task to swim the whole Pacific. Now, some of us in this room, may, maybe you can't swim. And what happens is you're super nervous. You don't even want to put your toe in, right? But then you turn around and a wave hits you and it sucks you under and you're, you're drowning. You're already drowning. You didn't even swim a lap. You're drowning, right? But some of us, not me, in this room are amazing athletes. Again, not me. Creatives, right? Come on. Some are amazing athletes, and so maybe you swim 100 yards or 200 yards, or heck, maybe you swim a mile or two miles, and then what? And then you give out, and you start sinking. But here's what a works-based mentality person does. As they're bubbling under the water, sinking to the bottom, they're screaming out, look how much further I swam than you! Buddy, we're both drowning. Who cares? We're both drowning. Great, you're drowning, you know, two miles out. I'm drowning right in front of the shore. Big deal. We both need a savior. We all need a savior. And that's exactly what Paul is unpacking here. Galatians 3, going back to verse 5. This is how he says it in the letter to Galatia. He says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe. believe. Another word for that is trust. For me, it just makes it so much more real when I talk about trusting him. When you trust the message you heard about Christ. In the same way, Abraham believed God. Whoa, whoa, wait. Didn't Abraham have to do a whole bunch of things? No, no. What was the prerequisite? Abraham believed. And God counted him as righteous because of faith. This is before Jesus died on the cross. And because Abraham believed in the message that Jesus was coming to die, God said, I see you as Jesus. I see you as perfect because you believe. That's the only prerequisite. No works. But wait, wasn't he circumcised? That was years later. Years after this, he believed and God said, you are righteous because you believe. Verse 7, the real children of Abraham, which was the big argument in the church of that day, the real children of Abraham then are those who are circumcised? No. They're those who put their faith in God. Remember the prerequisites. How many was there? One. Belief. Belief. Number two, the second thing that Paul is encouraging to keep at the forefront of your mind always so that you don't fall into a work-based relationship with the Lord is number two, remember the purpose. Everybody say purpose. I'm talking about the purpose of the law because I've even been asked questions over and over and over. Well, if God knew that we couldn't adhere to the law perfectly, why did he even write it in the first place? 
Why did he give the law if he knew we couldn't stand up to it? And Paul answers that verbatim. Look with me, Galatians 3, 19. Scripture says, why then was the law given? Paul, you are reading our mail. Come on. It was given alongside the promise, and we're going to talk about the promise in a second, to show people what? Their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, meaning Jesus. The law was designed to last only to the coming of the child who was promised. The law was written for us not to save us, but to remind us and show us that we need a Savior. It has a purpose. The purpose is not to save you. The purpose is to show you that you need a Savior. Let's go back to the ocean illustration. A few years ago, Israel is seven. Israel's our daughter. She's seven. And a few years ago, we started this process of figuring out um, exactly how to teach her to swim. Clearly, there's lots of water around here. And so it's a a very big deal to our family. And I am the self-proclaimed nerd of all nerds. And so what did I do when we started looking at how to teach her how to swim? I got some books on it. (laughs) Seriously, I did. And there's multiple ones. This is the one that we grabbed this morning, Swimmer's Workout Handbook. I know, you guys, I know. But the idea was that I wanted to figure out the best possible way to teach my child exactly how to swim. It has all of these different strokes in here, exactly how to do the strokes. And I thought, hey, I'm going to make sure that she can do it the best way possible. Now here's what I want you to see. Because the second Israel was willing to get into the water to learn how to swim, the second she looked like she was struggling at all, what am I grabbing? Am I grabbing the book or am I grabbing the life preserver? Think about it for a second. Because some of you in this room don't even realize that you have a workspace mentality. You don't even realize that your relationship with the Lord is so fundamentally based on works so that when you see people around you drowning, when you see people that are struggling and that don't know the Lord, what are you doing? Some of you in this room are going, oh my goodness, there's Sue and she's drowning. Here, Sue, grab a hold of it. And the Holy Spirit is saying that's making her sink faster. You are holding the answer in your hands. You know what it's like to experience his forgiveness. You know what it's like to experience his grace, his encouragement, his mercy when you didn't deserve it. And yet you are too busy throwing the book at her. Works based versus grace. Now, here's what I want you to see. Because some of you hear that and you think that these are contradictory but they're not. They both have their purpose, and they're not opposing each other. But you need to understand the purpose of the law was not to save you, Jesus, right? Jesus, and when we want to look more like Jesus, not to earn his love, not to earn salvation, that's where the Holy Scriptures come into place. Does that make sense? 
Both so powerful, so incredibly powerful. The prerequisites and the purpose. Look with me. Verse 24. Galatians 3. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Right? The Holy Spirit writes his law on our hearts. So now I don't have to be the, the book thrower at the people drowning, right? I just have to in, introduce them to Jesus and his Holy Spirit will guide and direct. Amen? Verse 26, for you all are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember the prerequisites. Remember the purpose. And this last scripture, a couple more for you. Look at verse 17. This is the last point as the band comes back. The last point is found in this group of scriptures. Verse 17 says, this is what I'm trying to say. Paul is like, I am trying every possible way to tell you that you're getting it wrong. And I need for you to come back to what I taught you. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise, and God doesn't do that. Verse 18, for if the inheritance, meaning salvation, meaning the fulfillment of the promises, if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as the promise. And that's number three. Remember the promise. Remember the promise. What is Paul talking about in this passage? He's talking about this promise that was given to Abraham. And if you want to go home and read about it tonight, it's found in Genesis, and it starts around Genesis 15. Some theologians call it the Abrahamic covenant. Now, covenant is a word that's not really used too much these days in our culture, because we're used to just kind of breaking promises, aren't we? And that's not a condemnation. It's just our culture doesn't value it the same. So maybe if we called it a contract. And in the Middle East, in some cultures in the Middle East, even today, but especially in biblical times, every covenant would have been cut, not signed. And when we say a covenant is cut, it literally means that it's signed in blood. In the blood, truly, of the two that are signing it. I have a professor, a teacher, that I studied under for a while, and he explained to me quite a few years back an experience that he encountered. He had gone to the Middle East to live with a Bedouin nomadic tribe in that area. He lived with them for a little over a year. And he did that because that culture was the closest to what Bible times would have been like that exists in modern day. And so he was studying everything that they were doing. And I remember when he told me, he said, actually, it was the, 
It was the first time I'd ever actually seen a covenant cut. And he said the entire scripture just exploded to life to me. He said, I watched as two families came together in a public arena and they listed what they were promising each other. In the covenant he witnessed, it was a man and a woman that were coming together to be married. And so they had listed, the man's family listed everything that he was promising to give to her in that marriage. And then her family was listing everything that she was promising to give to him in that marriage. And here's when it got really wild. He said, then the two families came together with a few very specific animals and they took the animals and they cut them in half. They slit their throats and placed half of the animal on one side of a ditch and the other half of an animal on the other and watched as the blood poured into that ditch. And he said, my mouth was just white. I I've never seen anything like it. And he said, in that moment, in their native tongue, they pronounced to the entire community... If I don't do this list of things for you, you can do this to me. And they walked through the blood. Meaning, if I don't fulfill every single thing I just listed on that paper, you can slit my throat and walk publicly through my blood. You know, we hear on the news still about beheadings and that sort of thing in the Middle East. And some of those are because covenants were broken. And after the first goes through the blood, then the second pronounces to the entire community. If I don't fulfill every part of this promise, you can do this to me. You go to Genesis, and we read it as Westerners, and it kind of goes over our heads. But Abraham knew exactly what God was doing. God comes to Abraham, and he says, you know what? I am going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. The Savior, the promised child is coming through your lineage. And Abraham said, well, Lord, how do, how do I know? What do I have to do? And God said, we'll get to that. He said, Abraham, you go get a heifer a calf, a pigeon, a dove. He lists all the exact animals. And if you read in scripture, Abraham doesn't say, but why God? Because he knew exactly what God was about to do. This was something that they had experienced many, many times. And Abraham, I imagine, was shaking as he took the knife and cut the sides of the animal and watched the blood flowing. Because in that moment, God said, okay, Abraham, Here's what you have to do for me. You have to obey me. You have to be perfect. That's what I require. And in that moment, if you read scripture, the Bible says in Genesis, a thick and dreadful darkness fell over Abraham. Do you know what that means in the original language? He was scared to death. Why? Because he knew he couldn't be perfect. Here's Abraham standing before God, knowing that the Savior is going to come through his lineage. And yet, if he steps foot in that blood, he's a dead man because he can never be perfect. And watch what our God did for Abraham. 
Because he did it for you and me too. God stood in front of that blood path. And he said, Abraham, if I don't fulfill every part of this covenant, if I don't bless you to be the father of many nations, if I don't bring the Savior through you, if I don't give you all of these amazing things, then you can do this to me. And then it was Abraham's turn. And I imagine that sweat was just pouring down his face. What a dilemma. He's dead if he steps in. The whole world is dead if he doesn't. What does he do? And in that moment, look at Scripture. Because Scripture says the first to pass through was the smoking pot, a symbol of God. And second should have been Abraham. It should have been Abraham stepping in that blood. And instead, Scripture said it was a fiery, blazing torch. Another symbol of our God. What was God saying? Don't miss this picture. The God of the universe in that moment, knowing that Abraham could never be good enough, knowing that he wouldn't be perfect, he said, my son, I got this one. But God, you've already walked yeah, I know. Abraham, I know you can't be perfect. So if you can't be perfect, you can do this to me. And in that moment, Jesus was sentenced to die on the cross for you and for me willingly because he knew that you would never be good enough, that I would never be good enough. And that, my friends, is the promise that belongs to you and me. That's the promise that we are heirs of. Look at how Paul closes this part of the letter. Verse 27, all who have been united with Christ, all, whether you've been circumcised or not, whether you can swim five miles or you fell in the ocean, all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Amen. Belongs to you. Yeah, but Pastor Ashley, I, there's no way I could ever be good enough. Yeah, he knows. He knew that from the beginning of time. That's why he held Abraham's chest back and walked through the blood for you and for me. You got to continue. Continue to remember the prerequisites. You think it's all that. No, it is believing. Don't you believe that lie of the enemy? It is not about your works. He loves you perfect now. Perfect. Remember the purpose. The law was meant to show us, to show us how much we need a Savior. And that promise that is for you and for me. Bow your heads. I want to pray for you. There are some of you that are here today that have never fully been told that you have a God 
that loves you exactly as you are now. You don't have to get cleaned up or shined up, fixed up. He loves you perfectly, exactly as you are now. And he wants you more than anything. He wants you more than anything. And maybe right now, today, you want to say yes to him. Say yes to his grace. Yeah, but maybe I need to get all this. No, 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 no. No, no. That's that works-based relationship. It's not the kind of relationship he wants. All the forgiveness, the perfect forgiveness is waiting on you now. You don't have to earn that. All of his perfect grace waiting on you now. You don't have to earn that. All of his promises and blessings waiting on you now. All you have to do is say yes. Just believe. Put your trust in him. If you want to do that today, whether it's for the first time or maybe you realize that you've gone to this works thing and you're done with it. It's exhausting. Who even wants to try? Try swimming that ocean. Good luck. We are all drowning. If that's you here today and you want to say yes, on the count of three, I want you to lift your hand. One, two, three. Lift it now. If you're saying yes to him, yes to his grace, yes to his mercy, yes, 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 yes. I see those hands. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you, Jesus. Now, in your own words right now, however you want to pray it, because he knows you better than you know yourself. However you want to say it, say, Jesus, I trust you. I trust your grace. I trust what Jesus did on the cross for me. I trust your promises. I trust what you have for me. And I want to live my life for you. Not to earn your love. Not to earn your forgiveness. But because I want to show other people that life ring. I want to show other people that they also can be saved. I want to show them your love. Because see guys, when you start understanding the grace-based relationship that God created for you, you start actually interacting with others in that same way. Wait, how can you forgive them? Because he forgave me. How can you just let that debt go? Because he paid all my debt. It, it's this amazing residual relationship. Maybe you're here this morning and you just want to repent for relying on your own works. And I want to do that with you right now because I got to be honest with you. This can be my struggle from time to time. Trying, I was always that achiever, man. I'm always needing to earn something, to, to work, to get. That was me. And so maybe if that's you right now, you can join me in, in your own way. Just repent before the Lord. Lord, you see our hearts. God, you know our struggles. Lord, there are some of us in this room, myself included. God, we tend to keep trying to go back to this works thing. Lord, and we are asking now, we are repenting before you. God, forgive us. Forgive us for thinking that anything that we could do outside of believing would ever earn your love or your salvation or your grace. God, we ask that you would help us to show your grace and your love to everyone that we encounter, Lord. We want to look more like you so that we can show you to others. God, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for what you're doing in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks again for joining us. To hear more messages like this one, be sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel. For more content and to connect with us, go to cfan.church.